Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the WLOD Show. For our 10th episode, I decided to take a break from our scripted pieces and venture into the win, lose, or draw mailbag. So far in this show, we've spent a lot of time talking about the common hangups or confusion points for new soccer fans. Anything from refereeing to a very quick overview of the complicated transfer market. But because we're only scraping the surface of soccer's many nuances, there have been a lot of questions left unanswered. So, here are some of the things that fans have been left wanting for over the last few weeks, or the content that can't make its own episode. Consider this the clip show of your favorite weekly sitcom, or in this case, the clip show of the podcast at the bottom of your queue. We've got a lot of exciting content coming your way over the next few weeks as we talk about chants, college soccer, and so much more. But for now, let's bust open the mailbag and get to answering your questions. Let's get started on win, lose, or draw. Okay, our first question comes from Eli in DC. Does the referee decide how much time gets played at the end of a match and how do they calculate it? Eli, there's a very simple answer to your question and it's yes, they do. This is known as injury or stoppage time and the head referee is responsible for determining just how much time is added on at the end of a half. This is both before halftime and at the end of a match. In professional soccer games, there's a running clock. So there are no timeouts, and it's not going to stop until the referee signals for halftime or full time. But that said, gameplay rarely fills a full 90 minutes, you've seen it yourself. Play stops for fouls, or substitutions, or injuries, or in most recent cases a cat running onto the playing field, any number of things. The referee keeps track of all of this. Generally speaking, stoppage time is comprised of time spent on substitutions, injury treatment, players intentionally wasting time, and basically anything else that the referee deems appropriate. On a more granular basis, rules for stoppage time may vary, depending on what league we're dealing with. Now, with that said, the referee will keep track of this time on their notes or on a fancy watch throughout the rest of the match. And by the time it comes for halftime or full time, they let the fourth official know, that's the one on the sideline, so they can display the time added on a board for the fans, the players, the commentators, and the coaches to see. Now, if all of this sounds inaccurate, just one person keeping track of all the time gameplay isn't actually happening, you are right. Stoppage time rarely reflects actual cumulative stoppage of play in any given game, and it's a particularly sore spot for new fans. Now, the blog 538 timed each stoppage of play in 32 games of the 2018 World Cup. They found that on average, cumulative stoppage time per game was short by over six minutes. Of course, if you try telling that to any fan whose team has lost a game in the sixth minute of stoppage time, you might be met with a different answer. There's no clear history, though, on the origin of stoppage time or even when it became universally adopted around the world. But the most widely accepted story on the internet is that of a match between England's Ashton Villa and Stoke City in 1891. Stoke, trailing 2-1 at the time, had been awarded a free kick with only moments to go in the match, back when buzzer, or in this case, whistle beaters, were actually a thing. Rather than risk the draw, Villa goalkeeper allegedly picked up the ball and punted the ball clear of the field, too far to reach before the referee ultimately blew for full time. And from then on, referees were permitted to add stoppage time. A likely story? Probably not. 
but I'm willing to roll with it if you are. Okay, we're going to stay with the laws of the game for this next one. Angelina in Baltimore asks, what's an indirect kick and what's a direct kick? And why does one get called and not the other? Thanks for the question, Angelina. It's actually a pretty simple difference between a free kick and an indirect kick, and it's all in the name. In a direct kick opportunity, the kicking team can go to goal with their kick. A ball that lands in the opposing net off of a direct kick will count as a goal, and the crowd can absolutely go wild. Now, the same cannot be said for an indirect kick. An indirect free kick must touch another player before entering the net. Any indirect kick played straight into the other team's goal results in a goal kick for the opposing team. Now, as for why one gets called over the other, you can actually remember that pretty easily because direct kicks are awarded for fouls that end in the letter ING. These are your physical fouls, reckless or with excessive force, things like kicking, tripping, charging, striking, pushing, tackling, holding, spitting, you get it, ING. But direct kicks are also awarded when the opposing team deliberately handles the ball or touches it with their hands, and this is commonly referred to as a handball. This, of course, would exclude the goalkeeper in their own penalty area. Any of those fouls that happen in the box result in a penalty kick with the player one-on-one with the goalkeeper. Now, how about an indirect kick? Those are awarded for basically any other violation. Things like a dangerous play, preventing an opponent from making forward progress, offsides, or impeding the goalkeeper from releasing the ball. And along with basically any number of things that the referee dictates that haven't already been mentioned. But when you're watching a game, the referee doesn't exactly announce what they're calling. They don't say they're giving a direct kick. They don't say they're giving an indirect kick. If you're still figuring out the rules, you can easily tell whether it's an indirect or a direct kick based on their hand movement. For a direct kick, the referee will raise their arm in front of their body and point in the direction of the kick that's going to be taken. Alternatively, for an indirect kick, the referee raises their hands above their head and holds it there, only lowering their arm when the ball has touched another player or gone out of play. Let's take your question one step further. What about indirect kicks inside the box? They happen. A great example actually occurred between the Spanish clubs Real Madrid and Sevilla in April of 2012. With Real Madrid on the offensive, Cristiano Ronaldo made a run into the box. When the cross came in, a Sevilla defender raised his leg high into the air to deflect the play, but came within centimeters of kicking Ronaldo in the head. The referee blew their whistle. The Sevilla player hadn't hit or kicked Ronaldo, so there was no call for a direct kick. Instead, it was ruled a dangerous play, and Real Madrid were awarded an indirect kick inside the box. Because defenders have to line up 10 yards from the kick and it wasn't a penalty kick, Sevilla defenders formed a wall almost immediately in front of goal, with the ball lined up just higher than the penalty spot. Three Real Madrid defenders lined up around the ball, with one with their back to the wall knowing it had to be hit another player before it could enter the net. With the one Real Madrid player's back to the wall, they played it ever so slightly just off to their right, teeing up a dead ball for Ronaldo to wail at. He fired toward goal and just hit the inside of the post before the ball bounced out and wide of play. And that's how you play an indirect kick in the penalty area. I answered more than you asked, so I'm going to take a quick break. Okay, let's get back to it. John in Omaha has a question about America's best hope for soccer greatness, and that is, how did Christian Pulisic end up in Germany despite being so young? 
Sharp catch there, John. FIFA rules dictate that because Christian Pulisic was an American, he couldn't sign a professional contract in Europe until he was at least 18. But as we learned in episode 8, Pulisic arrived in Germany at the spry age of 16 and was playing for the German side Borussia Dortmund's first team by age 17. Now, Christian Pulisic's father, a former player turned soccer coach, wanted his son to train with the best of the best, and that meant being in Europe's elite training academies. How? His European roots. Pulisic's grandfather was born in Croatia and maintained contact with several Croatian citizens, including, at the time, the manager of the Croatian national team, Niko Kovac. Kovac assisted the Pulisic family through the process of acquiring a Croatian passport, which, once secured, allowed Christian to sign a professional contract in Germany, thanks to his newly minted European Union status. There are plenty who argue including Pulisic's agent Rob Moore, that Pulisic's ability to train in Europe during his key development years were integral to his rapid rise to start. There was also a time, however brief, where the Croatian national team attempted to recruit Pulisic away from the United States. But those hopes were dashed when he debuted for the Yanks in March of 2016, which capped ties him to the United States men's national team. Of course, I can only wonder how he felt about that as he sat at home, watching the Croatians reach the World Cup final in 2018. But speaking of World Cups, Caitlin from Baltimore asks, why do they only play the World Cup every four years? And how is that different from Manchester United or Real Madrid? Let's address the first half of your question, because it's a good one. Why does the world's largest television event, with plenty of money up for grabs for players, for teams, and advertisers, only happen every four years? You'd think this was something they'd want to capitalize on. Well, the shortest answer is actually that they needed that much time to get back to it. There are 31 spots up for grabs in the World Cup, with one being reserved for the host nation. While that number is going to bump up to 45 in 2026, when the tournament is hosted by the United States, Mexico, and Canada but 31 spots for over 200 countries that fight to participate in the month-long festival of football. That kind of qualifying process can take anywhere from two to three years to come to completion. The reason being is because while the World Cup of international teams with players from only their home countries happens every four years, every year the privately owned club teams with players from all over the world those like Real Madrid and Manchester United, are playing games, just like our hometown baseball or football teams. If you notice, I kind of slipped in the answer to your other question. But with those billion-dollar clubs wanting to get the most of their players while they have them, the leagues those clubs play in only open up minimal windows for time for international teams to get together and play. These are known as international breaks. Essentially, for one to two week periods, Real Madrid and clubs like it all over the world let their players return to their home countries and play with their national teams, if they're invited, that is. It's during these breaks, usually six to eight a season, along with the summer break, that these qualifying games can occur. And then there are other international competitions like the UEFA Cup or the Confederations Cup competing for spots. It simply takes a long time to complete a full round of qualifying for the World Cup. By the time one tournament ends, it's only a matter of months before the next tournament cycle begins. And then, historically speaking, the qualifying process would take that much longer simply because of the infrastructure available for transportation when the tournament was founded in 1930. In fact, most European teams didn't come for the 1930s 13-team tournament because it was just too far to travel to South America. From then on, four years stuck. 
Okay, another rules question from Kate in D.C. Are there different rules for college or high school soccer versus FIFA soccer, like there is for the NFL or the NBA? Uh, why, yes, there sure are different rules. In fact, there are different rules at almost every level of the sport, particularly here in the United States. That said, they're largely inspired by the same set of FIFA rules. High school associations have marginally different rules from the NCAA, and these are both marginally different from the FIFA rules that govern club and international soccer at the professional level. While mostly similar, where you frequently see the largest differences are the substitutions and the timing of matches. Where high school and college matches in the United States generally permit near unlimited substitutions and end game on a defined clock, FIFA rules limit substitutions to three or four, depending on the league or competition, and allow the referee the final word on the timing of the game. We've already talked about that. Additionally, field sizes tend to be the largest disparity between high school and college and the professional game. While high school fields can be as narrow as 55 yards and as short as 100 yards to accommodate the many other sports that are likely played on them, professional rules dictate that a minimum width of 70 yards and a length of 110 yards. Let me know if you ever get around to measuring your local professional soccer field though. All right, time for our last question, which comes from Wes in New Jersey. He asks, what's the likelihood that soccer overtakes football as the preferred youth sport, especially with concussions being a major concern? Thanks for your question, Wes. You seem like you're a little worried that soccer is becoming more popular, what with using the word overtake in your question and all. But that said, soccer has already been one of the United States' most popular youth sports, along with baseball, basketball, and football. I would also argue that concussions are just as significant a concern in youth soccer as they are in football. In fact, a 2016 study found that over 25 years of research, 7% of soccer injuries were concussions, and the sport ranks second, just behind football, for total injuries. Concussion numbers are also very high for girls participating in youth soccer. A CDC report found soccer concussions to be the most frequent cause of ER visits for girls participating in youth sports. Of course, I don't mean to say the sport is unsafe. It simply underlines the need for education and injury prevention, particularly as the sport involves more and more players and more and more new inexperienced coaches. But now to fully answer your question, I would say the likelihood that soccer overtakes football is slim, but only because youth sport participation is dwindling as a whole. A recent study found youth sport participation down from 45% in 2008 to 36% in 2017. There are a myriad of reasons that could explain this, but the simplest answer is to follow the money. Youth sports, soccer and football especially, are remarkably expensive. They price out low-income families because of their lofty coaching and facility rental fees. For soccer to truly take over the market, it will take grassroots efforts and dismantling of the pay-to-play system that's infected youth sports in America. But more on that in future episodes. You'll just have to keep listening. That's all for this episode of the WLOD Show Mailbag. As always, this episode was researched, written, and produced by me, Chris Engelman, with the wonderful assistance of inquisitive listeners like you. If you have a question for a future episode, don't be scared. You can send them to the WLOD Show at gmail.com. As always, you can find us at WLOD Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you like what you're hearing so far, please subscribe so you never miss a moment. If you really like what you're hearing, definitely drop us a rating. More reviews help us reach a wider audience and grow the game even further. 
Thanks for your questions, and thanks for listening. See you next time on Win, Lose, or Draw.